Good to have everyone back after the weekend. Um, assignments coming up. We have an extra credit assignment that's due today. So uh, first thing, first thing really coming up due. Um, that will be go ahead and if you have not done that already, you can still send me that email. You can still do the subscription to the podcast. You can send me the email today. Um, if you want full credit, you're going to have to have that to me probably before about 9 o'clock because if you send it to me to 3 in the morning, I'm probably not going to get you a response back in time to submit it by the time it's due at 6 o'clock. So do, do send me that email. If you do it before 9 o'clock, I guarantee you'll get a response. I'll check in at that point. But if you send it at any time after that, if you send it at 9.05, you might. I don't know. But if I check at 9 o'clock and I'm done and there's nothing, I may just go ahead and turn the computer off. So. So if you're going to do that, go ahead and make sure you get that in tonight and then I will, uh, I will send you the file back and you can attach that to the Dropbox. If you've done it already, you should already see the credit in there. Make sure the email comes from, the Hawk, from your Hawkmail account too because the other ones get all spammed out for me so I, I rarely even see them. So make sure you, make sure you do send that, send that from that account and you'll get a response usually within a couple of hours. Again, unless you're sending it at like 2 in the morning, then you might have to wait a, wait a little longer. Homework one covering the first two chapters is due on Friday. If you have it done already, I got one person turned it in already, you can do that here. You can always submit it on D2L as well. Submit a digital copy on there online. Um, quiz one also covering the first two chapters will be available starting on Friday. We should be through, we're just about done with the very first chapter and we'll be through a good, we'll be through chapter one by Friday so we should be pretty good on having that quiz as scheduled. That'll be available through the long holiday weekend. I'll remind you of it on Wednesday when we come back and you can still take it through Thursday morning. Solar observations, if you can get me at least one that would be good. That's due by next Wednesday as well. Uh, so just that, again all you need is the date, the time, the sky conditions, height of your object and the length of your shadow. I'll take a look at it from there and see, let you know uh, by Friday if you're on the right track. And then exam one, again, I changed that last time and let you know that's scheduled for um, Monday oh, or two weeks from now, so two weeks from today. And that will cover the first three chapters, chapter zero, one, and two, and that should give us plenty of time to get through all of those, all of those chapters. Questions, questions? All set and ready to go, all right. Well, we got a picture of the day for today. And this is a bright planetary nebula, actually one of the brightest planetary nebulae you can see. You can actually see this through a small telescope. Won't look anything like that through a small telescope. So if you look at it, you'll see a fuzzy little dot pretty much through it, looking at the very brightest portion of that. This is actually taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble Space Telescope has a mirror in it. You've seen little telescopes and they've got mirrors that are maybe you know, this big, six, eight, ten inches across. Hubble Space Telescope is about two, almost two and a half meters across. So in terms of size, you know, there's one meter, two meters, and add another half of one of these on top of the end. So that's how big the mirror actually is on the telescope. So a very large telescope able to see a lot more detail than a much smaller telescope. But what this is, this is what's called a planetary nebula. Planetary nebula doesn't mean anything about planets. It has that because some of the early ones that were seen could have looked like early uh, little planetary systems through uh, a small telescope. But what it is, is it's the end state of a star like the Sun. So when a star like the Sun goes through its life, which we'll talk about coming up in a, 
and another month, month, month and a half. At the very end of its life, it expands. So the outer layers of it get very, very large, expand out. At some point, Mercury will be swallowed up by the sun. Venus will be swallowed up by the sun. The Earth will be swallowed up by the sun. So we're eventually all going to become part of the sun. And at some point, it becomes unstable enough that those layers have gotten so large that they get expelled out into space. And that's what you're seeing here. The star would be a little tiny dot at the center. In fact, you can see it pretty much right there. That would be the core of the star, what's left over. And the outer layers, that material, is what has been sent out into space here. You've got some material here, some material closer, that's just been expelled out into space. So our sun will do something like this in about 5 billion years. Yes, sir? Pretty much a vacuum. Everything you see there is pretty much a better vacuum than you'll produce here on Earth. It's an incredible, I mean, a particle here, a particle there, but when you spread that over a light year or a couple light years, that's a lot of particles there to glow. But the density is incredibly, incredibly small. So while you see it looks like there's lots of material there, it's really empty. You know, there's particle, there's one here and one here, but you know, in each cubic centimeter of air, there's, you know, a billion, 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 billion particles. So that's not like this. You're talking some of these densities you get. 10 particles in every cubic centimeter. Very tiny. I mean, better than a vacuum you're going to produce here on Earth. Yeah? Is it comprised of uh, primarily hydrogen and helium? Mostly hydrogen and helium, yes. That was, this was the outer layers of the star. The outer layers of a star do not undergo nuclear reactions, so pretty much they are what they formed. There will be some stuff in it. There will be carbon. There will be oxygen. Uh, if some of the lower layers did get expelled out, you will get some material. Primarily all hydrogen and helium, though. Although you will see some traces of, of other things as well, just as we see in the surface of the sun. So something that our sun will eventually, will eventually do, again, about five, five billion years, years from now. The dense core at the center left over is what's called a white dwarf star, one of the possible end states for a star. It's incredibly dense. So here we go the opposite direction. The, the outer layers are a vacuum, less dense than anything we have here. The inner layers are denser than anything we have. This is where you get to things where you know a teaspoon of material weighs as much as a battleship. You've essentially, on a white dwarf star, you've crushed all the space out of the, out of the atoms. So you've crushed all the space in between the atoms all together, and you've taken something the size of the sun and crushed it down to the size of the Earth. So incredibly undense around it, extremely dense when you get there, and that's not as dense as we get. There's actually denser things that we'll talk about coming up when you actually crush the space, crush the electrons out of the atom. You can actually make it even, you can actually crush things down even smaller. So interesting little picture to start. Uh, something again that our sun may look something like this, but if you look at different planetary nebulae, you go, go online and you know Google pictures of planetary nebulae, they're all different. All depends on the exact conditions of that star, so we can't tell you that the sun will look exactly like this, or it'll look exactly like that one, or that one, or that one. Who knows until it happens? Everything's a little bit different for each star. Questions? Questions? Yes, sir. The gravitation of a star when it goes into a red giant change as it goes to a phase, or that's the same relatively the same? The gravitation will only depend on the mass, so it will not change the gravitation of it. 
So the gravity from the, the, the amount of, the, of gravity that that red dwarf has, will, a red, red giant has, won't change. Because it only has the mass. Now it loses some mass here. Honestly, that's a little tiny bit of the mass that it had. All that material that's glowing there, it looks like so much. But pretty much 90% of the mass that the star had is still sitting there. It's all concentrated down to that core. It's just that little 5-10% that's gotten pushed off into space. So even afterwards, gravity hasn't changed a whole lot. Anything else? Yeah. Good. How how close is that star? Yeah. That I don't know without having to be able to look it up. The nebula itself, they usually give me a number. Uh, let me see if it says. <coughs> First discovery. Maybe not this time. That's the name of the that's the catalog name of the nebula. So NGC is the new general catalog. It's a catalog of fuzzy objects in space. So anything that's not really a star is cataloged in this catalog. And this is just catalog number 7027. It doesn't have one of those cool names, you know, like the Orion Nebula or any of the others. It's just a, mainly because through small telescopes it doesn't look like very much. But yeah, I'd, ha I'd have to look up distances on it. But, but it depends. You know, normally when it's a galaxy, I can tell you one is so much closer than the other, but with a planetary nebula, depending on the exact conditions, the star could be closer, the nebula could be closer. You can't tell, you couldn't tell. It's not associated with it, it just happens to be in the same direction. The star could actually be closer, the nebula could actually be closer. It would depend on the, how bright that star is and what type of star it is, and the actual distance to that nebula. I don't know if we see any, eh, I can't tell for sure if I see any real good big galaxies you're going to see there. You see a few little fuzzy objects that are way off in the distance. Anything else? Nope, nope, nope. Alrighty. Well, let's go on and finish up our first chapter here. We were just about done with it last time. So, uh, let's see. Let's not go back to the beginning there. Okay. So we had talked about, talking about the moon and eclipses last time. The last two sections have to do with uh, the beginning of measuring distances. So one way that we have of measuring distances, and in fact the only direct way, is something very similar to what is shown here. So triangulation is a way to determine the distance to an object when you can't necessarily get there directly, or it's not convenient to be able to measure, you know, trying to walk a tape measure, walk something across the river to measure the distance to that tree. You can do it by measuring the angle. So you measure, you sight on the tree from this angle, you sight on the tree from this angle, you measure a lot easier. You don't got to go across the river, so you can measure this baseline very easy between your two observers or between your two observing points. And you can measure this angle. If you try to want to solve a right triangle, if you, this is a right angle here, if you want to solve that, once you know one side and one angle, you can determine all the other parts of the triangle. So you can determine all the angles involved. You can determine the lengths of all the sides involved. So once you measure this angle, and this baseline, all of a sudden I can easily determine how far away that tree is. In a way that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of what you're doing with the, your shadow lengths. You're doing not quite the same because you're not measuring from two different places, but you're solving or we're solving a right triangle. You're doing the same kind of solution when, when you solve for measuring the length of the shadow. We're 
getting an angle and we're getting one, one side, how tall is your object, and then we're going to determine, or in the length of the shadow, and we're going to determine the angle in, this, in that case. So similar type method, just slightly turned around. So one way we can measure distances, if we can measure this angle and we can measure this baseline, I can then determine the distance to a tree. Now how can we turn that? We want to be able to measure the distance to a star, so how can we do that? If I measure the star, if I sight on a star from here, move across the room and sight on the same star, if I could measure that angle, that angle by which that star appears to shift, then we could determine its distance. Because what you're going to see is if you look at this star from a, at this tree from A, it's going to look like it's at one point. If you look at it from B, it's going to look like it's, it's moved. It hasn't, but it looks like it has. Yes, sir? The baseline is from where you're making your two measurements. So if I make a measurement here, and I go make a measurement over here, you know, 10 feet away, 15 feet away, I can measure that baseline. Now that's way too small to measure anything for a star. For measuring the distances to you guys, it would work. Because, you know, someone in the front has now shifted. So here two people are lined up, but if I go over here, guess what? Same person isn't lined up anymore. They've shifted. That's what we're seeing with the stars. The stars will shift the same way. Now, admittedly, 10 feet won't work. Can't even measure on different parts of the Earth. It won't work. But there is a way to be able to do that, which is, well, in this case, we're going to show it using the Earth, but that's not even enough. We actually have to use the whole Earth's orbit. So what we use in astronomy is parallax. And what that says is that now here's A and B. We're not just using little sections, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet down the river. We're actually looking at the star or the object from one side of the Earth to the other side of the Earth. Wouldn't necessarily have to be. Wouldn't. Could could work at different latitudes. Could work as long as you can figure out the distance between them. We show it at the equator just because it's convenient. And actually, that's not shown at the equator, is it? It's oddly tilted because that the equator doesn't go through Mexico, so. <laughs> I'm not sure what that's just, yeah. But no, it does not have to be at the, at the equator. It could be any place, any place on the Earth. The equator actually should go down here through the northern part of South America. So either the map is wrong or it's meant to be tilted a little bit or something in terms of picturing that. But never noticed it until you mentioned it being at the equator. And I went to look and I said, that's not the equator. It's going through Mexico. But when you make the measurement from two different places, that star is going to appear, the nearby star is going to appear to shift its position. It'll look in one direction in one side. It'll look in another direction a little bit different in the other. And if we can measure that angle, we measure that angle, we know the distance, right? We know the size of the Earth. We know how big this is. So we know what our baseline is from A to B. That we determine. We measure this little teeny tiny angle by which this star has seemed to change between observing it here and observing it here. And then we can solve and find the distance, find out how far away it is. Now that won't even work for a star. If we try to do that for even the closest star and measure it at one edge of the Earth, measure it at the other edge of the Earth, you're not going to get any shift. You're not going to get any shift that you're going to be able to measure. It's still way too small. What we actually do is measure the Earth at two ends of its orbit. So we look at it now, in August, right? Come back again six months later, 
look at the same star. We've moved, doesn't feel like we're moving, right? But we moved, we've gone halfway around the sun. So instead of being here, here's the sun. We were over here in August. If we wait six months, now we're over here, the end of February. And now we have a baseline of two astronomical units. Twice the distance of the Earth to the Sun. Much bigger shift. And we can be able to, we're able to measure the shift better. Doing that, we can actually measure that, that parallax shift for the stars. It's still an incredibly tiny angle. Remember angles from last time, right? I did, did, was it last time or the first time? I did one degree, which is 60 minutes of arc. Let me write it out. And one arc minute was 60, well, little slash does not, not mean foot in this case. It actually means uh, arc minutes. So one arc minute is 60 arc seconds, meaning that our full moon is about 1,800 arc seconds across. The angle that we're looking for, I mean full moon, it's not that big, but it's not all that big up there in the sky. You can cover it pretty easily. The angles we're trying to measure, the largest parallax, is about 0.75 arc seconds. It's about 1 2,000. Divide the full moon into 2,000 little pieces going across it, and you're trying to measure the shift of one of those for the closest star. Not for the nearer, not for the more distant stars, but for the very closest star. This was not measured until uh, early, mid-1800s. We were not able to measure this shift. This was really one of the big proofs, finally, that the Earth moved. You know? We'll talk about that coming up in the next chapters, you know, tr trying to determine that the Earth moved. But to really see it, this is a demonstration because it's a, it's a prediction that is made by the thought that the Earth goes around the Sun. We should see this shift in the stars. So one of the reasons that it wasn't easily accepted was because this theory that the Earth went around the Sun, we now know it's fact, but because of the, it, it made a prediction. It said we should be able to see a shift in the position of the stars. We didn't. For hundreds and hundreds of years, we were unable to observe it. So that kept a lot of people who might have otherwise accepted the theory. Well, you know, it makes a prediction we can't, we can't observe. We can't observe. We're not able to detect it. It wasn't until, I believe, the 1830s that we were actually able to measure that parallax. So less than 200 years ago that we were actually able to make that measurement. This is our first and our really only direct way of determining distances to the stars. It works now for the few hundred to a thousand of the nearest stars. We can use this to actually determine distances. Only in our very close part of our solar neighborhood, only very close to us. For more distant stars, we have to come up with other methods that all sort of tie back in to this one. So we will come back to distance over and over again uh, throughout the course. This is just sort of the first step and of being able to determine distances to the stars. All right, last thing for this chapter is talking a little bit about the scientific method. And what the scientific method is, is sort of telling you how to, how to come up with a scientific theory. And I'll give you a little chart on the next one to show you that. But what it gives you is some 
ideas of what a scientific can, can be. First of all, it has to be something you can test. If there's no way to test it, it's not a good scientific theory. So uh, something you couldn't really test would be, say that you know Einstein is the greatest scientist who ever lived. Is it true? Can we test it? A lot of people might agree with it. Some people might disagree and say, no, Newton was better, or you know, so-and-so was better. There's no way to really be able to do it. It's not a theory that you could test. A better theory could be, you know, the moon is made of green cheese. We know it's wrong, right? But, but it's testable. So I could make that theory, I could make that, it makes a prediction, and we can go there, make a trip to the moon. Really watch your tuition skyrocket with that field trip, right? Um, go to the moon, test it, take a piece, bite, bite your, bite your, break your tooth, and find out that I was wrong. That it was not. But it's something we could test. It is something that I could test. So that would be a good scientific theory. It makes a prediction. Yes, we all know it's wrong, but it makes a prediction that we could test. Continually tested. So really no scientific theory is ever done. It's constantly being retested. So uh, Einstein's relativity has worked with every test we've given to it. It's still continuing. People are still continuing to test it. And you know, trying to find the limits. At some point, we'll probably find some place where it breaks down, where it does not work, and a new theory will take over for it. But it has to be continually tested. We just don't accept one as, you know, as fact, as permanent. It's always being continually tested. You never know when something new may come up that explains everything that we see and explains something new. So we look for simple theories. Simple and elegant theory. So something that is relatively simple. You don't want to make your theory so complex. You want the simplest theory that explains everything. You don't want to make it overly simple that it can't explain everything. But you want the simplest theory that works that can actually explain the observations that you see. And then the last statement there really says, you can prove a scientific theory wrong. That's very easy. You know, Einstein says how gravity works. If we find one case where it doesn't, we just proved it wrong. Can we never prove it right? Can we ever prove it right? No. Keep finding new cases, keep finding new things, keep testing. So scientific theories are never, can be disproven. We can find something that, that disagrees with it. And we can verify it, the theory. But we can never prove one of the scientific theories right. We can, we're always testing them, and they're always being modified. There are always modifications come in that come up to explain new observations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Newton's laws of motion are incorrect. They are not the right equations to use. They work in 99.99% of everything you'll ever do. They work just fine. But when you get close to the speed of light, Newton's laws break down. When you get near very intense gravities, Newton's laws break down. But they work for everything. Guess what? We're going to be going over them in another chapter or two. So I mean, I'll be going over Newton's laws. Doesn't mean you, do, you throw out everything completely, but there, we're, going to, we're going to find cases where certain ones don't work. But that's correct. You know, Newton's law of gravitation. I'll give you Newton's law of gravitation. It's wrong. But it works for lots of things that we can use. Yes, sir? Isn't Einstein wrong? Is Einstein wrong? Doesn't he claim that? That is one place where Einstein, where general relativity breaks down. It does not explain what goes on inside a black hole. Outside it works fine. 
When you get down there, what you need is go a little over the class. You need quantum gravity. You need something that combines quantum mechanics and gravity. And that we don't have yet. So trying to explain how gravity works on minuscule scales. So, but that, you're correct, yes. When we get to the inside of a black hole, yeah, it condenses down. And how do we have this concept of an infinite density and you know, everything at one point? The mass of the sun, you know, and I've got it between my fingertips, squished together as hard as they can be. So we just don't have any idea yet? No, we have no clue. We'll talk, about, talk a little more about that when I get to black holes, but we have no, we have no clue on that. Okay. All right, let me put up my little chart there, just kind of showing how, how this works. Uh, really, everything starts with an observation. You see something, something happens. The planets appear to move a certain way in the sky. And you come up with a theory. You watch, these, you watch the stars, something we'll talk about in the next chapter, but as ancient astronomers looked at the stars at night, there were five stars that didn't seem to move, that didn't move with all the others. They wandered among the, among the stars. That's how they got their name as planets for wanderers. So there was an observation. All these stars move the same. All the other stars rise in the east, set in the west, and they all stay together in the same pattern. Then there's these five that wander among, among the rest of the stars. Sometimes they're in this constellation, sometimes they're in that constellation. They're the only five that do that. So you come up with a theory to explain, okay, how do they move? Can I, make, can I, can I find out to decide how they move? So we could have the Earth being at the center, right? Makes sense because we're not moving. Doesn't feel like it. So I'll put the Earth at the center and have the planets orbiting around the Earth. And then the stars way off in the distance. And that's a way to explain the observation that we see. A perfectly good scientific theory. And it makes predictions. That's the important thing. It has to make some predictions. So you come up with your theory and that says, okay, next May, Mars will be here. Well, you wait till next May, where you're right or where you're wrong. If you're wrong, you can go back and modify your theory. Don't necessarily have to throw it out. You might be able to just modify it. You might be able to say, well, I thought it was moving this fast. Maybe it's moving a little bit slower, moving a little bit faster. Maybe its orbit's a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller. There are some things that you can adjust within the theory and then try again. Keep working on that until you get the best theory you can that fits your observations. So you can actually map out. We can actually map out the positions of the planets you know, using the Earth, an Earth-centered universe. Putting the Earth at the center. You can actually map out the positions of the planets and predict them fairly accurately. And in fact, that's why it worked for so long. That's why we considered the Earth to be the center for such a very long period of time. When you start getting things that completely disagree and they get worse and worse, you start finding more and more problems, then you start rethinking your entire theory. Then you get to the point where you're going to rethink the entire theory and say, is there a better way to do this? Is there a better way to be able to explain how the planets move? My theory has gotten so complicated that I not only have the Mars moving around the Earth, but Mars is doing this little loop-de-loop on its orbit to explain all the little motions that we see. It starts to get more and more complicated. It's no longer that simple, elegant theory that we want. Then we really start looking for something different, looking for a new theory. All right, so we finished our first chapter. I got a, just got a couple summary sheets I'm going to go over there, um, which I do at the end of each chapter, just kind of summarizes, summarizes each thing. So are there any other questions on this before I jump off? No, no, no? All right. So I have at the end, I just have just sort of a little review here. 
just kind of reminding you of some of the different topics that we covered in the, in the unit. And just reminding, we talked about the universe was everything and astronomy was the study of that. So astronomy, technically the study of everything. We talked about the celestial sphere as a way of describing positions in the sky. So very easy way to be able to describe positions in the sky. It's not correct. There is not a great celestial sphere around us. Looks like it. You go out there and lie out on a nice clear night. It sure looks like there's all these stars attached to a great big sphere. But they're really all at great, really widely varying distances. So we lose that entire three-dimensional aspect. Um, the Earth's orbit around the sun and the Earth is tilted. So the Earth has that 23.5 degree tilt which causes the seasons. So because of that 23.5 degree tilt, the Earth has seasons. So we're coming, we're in summer right now, coming into fall in a few weeks. The more that tilt is, the more extreme the seasons will be. Uh, I went through phases, we talked about phases, we talked about eclipses. The moon does not give off its own light. It only reflects light from the sun. And depending on the orientation of the earth, the moon, and the sun, we see different portions of that moon that are illuminated. Sometimes we see the whole illuminated side, sometimes we see none of it, and sometimes we see something in between. Now we mentioned the two days, the solar and the sidereal day, which are not the same. There's a solar day, is 24 hours, that's what we use. That's our regular calendar day. The sidereal day is how long it really takes the earth to spin once on its axis. So how long does it really take that to occur? That's 23 hours and 56 minutes, a little bit shorter because during the time it's, the Earth is spinning that one time, it's moved a little bit of the way around the Sun. So it's actually headed a little bit further around the Sun during that time. And then our last section here, we had the same thing with months. We had the same things with years. So there's a synodic month relative to the sun. That's the month of the phases of the moon. There's a sidereal month, how long it really takes the moon to rotate around the earth once. They're not the same, again, because the earth and moon are revolving around the sun at the same time. There was a tropical year. The seasons, there was a sidereal year relative to the stars. They don't match up either. And that's because that, or the earth's axis is slowly changing its position. And then today we talked about parallax. How one way we can measure distances, triangulation here on the Earth, parallax out in space. And then why I have eclipses there, so I sh it shouldn't quite be there, that's not really the good space for it, but eclipses occur rarely. And they occur rarely because the sun and the moon are not lined up in the same plane. Meaning that they're not on a flat piece of paper. You can't draw the Earth going around the sun on a piece of paper, that works great. But if you want to draw the moon's orbit in there, you can't draw it on that same flat piece of paper. It's tilted a little bit. Only about five degrees, not a whole lot, but enough that most of the time when we get a new moon, it passes above the sun, it passes below the sun, and we don't actually get everything lining up perfectly. That only happens uh, once or twice a year. And then finally, we kind of finished up talking about the scientific method. Observation, we see something, we make a theory about it. That theory makes a prediction. Okay, we predicted something, we want to go observe it again. That observation can lead to verifying the theory 
throwing out the theory, modifying the theory, and making a new prediction, and making new observations, and making new modifications, and it goes on and on and on. So continues. All right, one chapter down. 17 to go. 17 to go? 18 to go? I don't remember. Yeah. No, no. Galaxy would not be big enough. We have to use different methods for galaxies. Stars will only work for the very closest stars to us, within a few hundred light years, a few hundred to maybe a thousand, thousand light years. That's about it. Galaxies, we're talking millions of light years. We need different methods for, for those. All right, well, we'll finish up chapter zero there, and we will zip on to chapter one. Yay. All right, so. Let's see. Let's go ahead and start here with chapter one. Chapter one goes through a little bit of the history of astronomy. Not very much. Uh, it kind of actually jumps in in the, mentions a little bit of the very early section, ba barely, and then really jumps into the Renaissance era. So this book does not go into a lot of the detail. It goes into a little bit more in your textbook, but what I have on here doesn't really cover a lot of the older, the er earliest uh, eras of astronomy. But really what we want to look at, the big thing we want to look at here is the idea of the motion of the planets. How the planets appear to move. I kind of started you on that in the last chapter, that ancient astronomers had all of these stars that they looked at and they all did the same thing. You watched them, they all moved together. You know, they didn't zigzag around, Orion didn't change shape. Right? Same pattern of stars was there this year and last year and it was there for your father and your grandfather and your great grandpa. It was always the same pattern of stars. But the planets were the one thing that was different. And that's what really led to what we call the birth of modern astronomy. Trying to explain how those planets moved led to the realization that we had to jump from putting the Earth at the center, which works because it sure doesn't feel like we're moving, we're zipping around at however many thousands of miles an hour we would be, bless you, out there. It doesn't feel like we're moving. But really being able to use that as a better way to explain how the planets moved. And that's when we'll come into laws of planetary motion and Newton's laws. And then once we get into chapter two, we'll get a little bit more into, into gravity. So here's a little bit of an idea of what we get. The nice things, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they sure all look like they're orbiting around the Earth. Hey, one of them is, right? The moon is. But when you sit there and watch the sun, all of its motions are perfectly consistent with the Earth being at the center and the sun moving around it. You can explain its motions very easily using that method. The stars, the same way. You can explain them as a big sphere orbiting around the Earth, and it's very easy to explain it that way. So the moon is correct. The other ones do. Now, the reason we can explain the sun that way is because instead of the, earth or the sun orbiting around the Earth, it's the Earth orbiting around the sun, and you're just seeing the reflected motion of one in the other. So when we see the sun moving, it's really we're just seeing the reflection of what the Earth is really doing. So it works out much, much simpler. What doesn't work out as simple is the paths of the planets. The planets actually move with respect to the stars. Stars sometimes called the fixed stars. Now here is the constellation of Cancer and constellation of Leo here. And these stars all stay in the same pattern. So I could look at them now, I could look at them next month, next year, 10 years from now. They're all going to be exactly the same. But when I watch Mars, 
probably Mars in this case, it seems to go here, here it is in November, here it is in December, here it is in January, here it is in February, March, it's going backwards, April, turned around again, May, June. So not only do they wander through the stars, that's one thing to be able to explain, but they don't go in even a consistent direction. They kind of wander through them and they'll stop, go backwards. So you know, heading out here, heading out someplace, realize you forgot something, got to run back home to get it, and head back again, right? Sometimes looks like that in the sky. That the, that's what the stars, the, the planet is doing. Now you don't see that. Look at the dates. You don't watch that over the course of a night. If you sit, go out there and look at Mars, uh, I think Mars is pretty early in the morning right now. Um, you can see Mars. You're not going to watch it move. It takes many months to be able to see this change. So, but it will do this. It'll go here. It'll stop. Its motion relative to the stars, not in the sky. Its motion relative to the stars and will appear to go backwards through the stars. None of the other stars do that. Only the planets move with respect to the stars. They change their brightness. Sometimes they're brighter. Sometimes they're fainter. Most of the stars, there's a few, that there's a, there are some variable stars, but not, most of them do not change to the extent that the planets do. They change their speed, right? In order to go from here to here, we had to have stopped at one point. How do we explain that? And how do we explain this loop? Why do these go, why do these flip around and go backwards? A very difficult thing to be able to explain in an Earth-centered system. But it can be done. So we can actually take an Earth-centered system and explain all of this, and for thousands of years, that's what was used. Uh, it started off back in, oh, what, 5, 600 BC, some of the very earliest models trying to explain how this move, this worked. It was formalized by uh, Ptolemy. No. Ptolemy in about, what was he, about 150 AD. And for the next over about 1,000, 1,500 years, this model with the Earth at the center was what was used to predict the planets. So, lasted a lot longer than our current models, right? Right now we're at four or 500 years using an Earth-centered, or Sun-centered model. So this one actually survived for quite a long time. And it was something Similar to this, this is the very basic model. It got a lot more complicated than this. But there's the Earth at the center. There was an orbit. The planet was orbiting around it. But not just orbiting. The deferent here would be the planet's orbit. But the planet didn't sit on its orbit. It sat on another circle. So, what we call an epicycle. So you had an epicycle here. Here's the planet. It moves on this little circle. And the center of that little circle moves around on the big circle. Okay. It works. You can use that to make predictions and to be able to explain where the planets are going to be at any given time. Depending on how you adjust the size of this circle, the speed of the planet on that, on that, around that one, the speed here, the size of this orbit, you could fit it and get very accurate observations at least to the accuracy what we could measure at the time. So there were some deviations, but most of them, it doesn't work perfectly, but it's, it's very close for what they were able to measure. So it was one way to explain the planetary motions. It's a theory. It made predictions, right? You could take this model, get all your speeds and sizes all set, and predict 
two weeks from Thursday, where is this planet going to be? You could do it. You come back in two weeks and there, either there it is or there it isn't. And you can adjust your model accordingly to get it to fit. So it works, ve it works very well and it does explain retrograde motion. Right? Usually the planet is going around counterclockwise, but every once in a while when it's on the inside loop here, it's going to look like it goes backwards. And it's going to explain that retrograde motion that I showed you on the last one. So it explained all of the observations that we had. But it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. But that was the very early, and again, this lasted for over a thousand years. But it gets more and more complicated. In order to try to do them, you have, here's a little more complex model of this. There's the Earth, Moon going around it. Actually, to really get accurate observations with some of this, you had to have epicycles on almost everything. So you had to have, here's the Earth going around, here's Mercury on its epicycle, here's Venus on its, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, everything that was known at the time. And it gets much more complicated. But it does explain the motions. And if you need it, if things weren't quite working, you could actually add another epicycle on top of the epicycle to explain the motion. So if you had to, you could add another one and you've got enough variables in there, you can keep adjusting them to fit your observations. Think about doing that. You know, this was done thousands of years ago. So it's a lot of calculations. You know, don't plug it into the computer, add another circle and let it do all the work for you. Question? Yeah. 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 This is what they had based on. This is what they would have had based on their motions. Okay. They would have had Mercury and Venus in closer to the Earth, so the Moon would be the closest. They knew that Mercury and Venus would have been the next two closest, then the Sun, and then Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in that order. So they had the ordering pretty much right. What? Sorry. Because based on the way they could see the planets move, they could see that Mercury and Venus were always between Earth and the Sun. So if you put them out here beyond the Sun, they could see that these two were always between Earth and the Sun because of where they are in the sky. So because of where, how they moved, they were able to then determine that they had to be closer. So this was, this was Ptolemy's model. Again, it got very, very complex. But it worked with other modifications and there are all sorts of other details that I'm not going into. Um, in fact, one of the things that they did is that the Earth is at the center, right? No, actually the Earth wasn't at the center. The Earth was actually off-centered a little bit. So everything was orbiting around this empty spot that the Earth happened to be close to. So it gets more and more complex, but it was a way to be able to explain the motions properly. Now, an easier way to explain it is a sun-centered universe. Explains retrograde motion without needing epicycles, without having to put those extra circles in there. And the way we explain retrograde motion in a heliocentric universe is there's the Earth moving around. We're closer to the sun. We're moving a little bit faster. Here's Mars, a little further away, moving a little bit slower. So if we look at Mars at position one, it looks like it's here. Position two, same time, it's here. Three, it's there. Four, five, and so on. Mars will seem to trace out this loop in the sky, and it will look like it's going backwards. 
It doesn't. Mars never stops and goes backwards. It's always moving around in its orbit. But when you're driving down the highway and you pass a truck, that truck looks like it's going backwards. You know, relative to you, it looks like it's going backwards. Right? It's still going forward. You're just going forward faster than it is. So it makes it look like it's going backwards. Because we're passing, we're lapping Mars, passing it, we make Mars looks like, look like it is churning and going backwards. So it gets rid of a lot of that complication. And that's what the heliocentric model did. So it got rid of that. One of the problems was it did make this prediction of parallax. It said that if we're moving and we're here, and then we're going here, we should see the stars seem to shift positions. And we didn't see that. So that's one of the reasons that even though it was easily, it explained things like this a lot easier, it didn't explain everything properly. It didn't, it made a prediction that we couldn't see. Yes, we know now that it, we just didn't have the technology to be able to detect it, but still, when you have a scientific theory that makes a prediction and that prediction doesn't come true, it sort of casts doubt on that theory. All right, let's see, we got time for, yeah, we can do, we'll start on Galileo here and then finish up this on Wednesday. Um, we're going to jump around, jump all over a little bit here. I'm going to jump ahead to Galileo. Um, Galileo made some observations, and we got a few of them up here. In fact, let me summarize them again up on the board. What Galileo did was to use a telescope. He did not invent the telescope. He actually heard of the idea of a telescope that had been invented a few years before, but he actually built, took, took lenses, built his own telescope, and was the first to really record his observations, to look, at, to look at different things, especially in the sky, and record his observations. And some of the things that he saw were, first of all, craters on the moon. Okay. Now, you, so you can't, if you look at the moon right now, you see it's got some patches on it, but you can't really see any craters. You can see some very large impact there and some other stuff, but you can't really see a direct, directly a crater. So the moon is not perfect, is what this tells us. Is what this tells us. Why is that any big deal? Well, the teachings from the ancient Greeks were that the earth was imperfect and that the heavens and everything in the heavens were perfect. So that's why they all, everything moved in a circle, everything, all those orbits were circular, and all of the planets and every, all the stars were perfect. So this was the first evidence of something that was not perfect. This moon has craters on it. Well, maybe it's just too close to the Earth and we've corrupted it, right? You know, it's the real closest thing to the Earth, we've corrupted it. So it's not quite as perfect as everything else would be. We also find sunspots. So now the sun isn't even perfect. Okay? The sun has spots on it, big blotches on it. I'll talk about in more detail what those mean in a future chapter but it's got these spots on its surface. So it's not just a perfect big sphere as was thought. It actually has imperfections and we can watch those imperfections and it shows that the sun is actually rotating. So we can see that the sun is actually spinning on its axis. He also saw the moons of Jupiter here was a big one Moons of Jupiter. Saw, saw, we looked at Jupiter. He saw four stars that, were, that sat right by Jupiter. And they moved. 
and they moved right around Jupiter. They moved, you could see them, they'd move back and forth in front of Jupiter, and you could interpret that they were orbiting around Jupiter. They weren't sitting there all by themselves, they were actually associated with Jupiter, and you could measure their periods. You could see that it took one of them a little less than two days to get back to the same position. You could see that the furthest one took about two weeks to get back. This was big because this was the first evidence of anything in the solar system that didn't orbit the Earth, for sure. So here is evidence that something does not orbit the Earth. That we can, Jupiter can have moons, has these four moons. Now it's got like 60 or 70 that have been detected. But Jupiter had these four first moons that orbited around it. There was something that did not orbit the Earth. Everything did not have to orbit the Earth. Before this, everything orbited the Earth. The moon did, the sun did, all the planets did. But now once you get something, once you find something that doesn't fit, that everything orbits the Earth, then, you know, it starts to open things up. The last two I'll put up and then we'll finish over on these. Uh, Venus has phases. This is the other biggie. And one that's not up there is that he saw stars in the Milky Way. Stars in the Milky Way was, not, was big because there were supposed to be a fixed number of stars in the sky. You could count them all, you know, 7,283 stars and there are no more. There are no less. There's always the same number and they don't change. So all of a sudden Galileo turned his telescope to the Milky Way, that faint fuzzy patch of light in the sky, and found that not only are those few thousand stars, but there's thousands and thousands and millions more. Venus phases of Venus is the biggest one, and I'm going to save that since we're out of time and come back tomorrow. It's kind of why I jumped ahead. So these two were the two biggest. I will come back on Wednesday, on Wednesday, not tomorrow, and pick up with the phases of Venus and a little more on Galileo's observations. So don't forget the extra credit assignment. If you haven't already emailed me that from your Hawk Mail, make sure you get that sent today by 9 o'clock so I can get you a response. Thank you. Oops, wait one second.